My name is Yuri Lowenthal. My name is Travis Sintel. And you are awaited. You, you are awaited is a Mad Max Fury Road podcast where we get to talk to the coolest people in the world. And that's what we're doing today. Special guest episode. Uh, Mark Mangini, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Um, uh, for, for those of you who, who may or may not know, uh, Mark was a sound editor, sound design, mm-hmm. sound on, on and Fury supervising Road. sound editor. Yet another super- label. For okay, there's so many labels that I don't understand, but yeah. uh, but we'll uh, we'll pick it apart as we go. Okay. Uh, but this is not your first film, Mark. My for, uh, my 135th. So close to first film. 35th, right in the ballpark. Film. And as I was going down the list of Mark's credits before I came in, because because you know you got to do a little research. I mean, I, I know we're here for Fury Road. Yeah. But but I had to I had to look into it and you've got some of my favorite movies on your list. I imagine I'm hoping that's one of them. The Fifth, the, the element, fifth are my element. favorite movies. I will tell for you what. Sure. The Fifth <laughs> Element is the movie that I put in. Um, it's the first movie that I put in when I'm setting up a sound system at home when I'm setting up new um, uh, 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 surround sound. Right. That is my test movie and has always been my test movie ever since it came out. Fascinating. Um, so thank you for that because yeah. it is a great way to test your surround sound. For those of you listening who need a movie to this is the one need another reason to to see the Fifth Element, which is not you um, never needed a second but, reason. But but yeah, Fifth Element, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you worked yeah. on. Um, yeah. Early animation. I'm a big animation buff. Yeah, started Aladdin with and, and um, a Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, among other things. Uh, and I'm real proud of those because that was sort of the resurgence of their. The gold, the re- second golden age of Disney animation. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and 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 a personal favorite that most of you probably haven't seen, but I'm but I've already noticed several things in your studio here uh, that that bear the likeness. Schizopolis. Schizopolis. Yeah. is one of my. <laughs> no one's seen Schizopolis. Fav- it is my. Sorry, Stephen, but it is it is my favorite. Is one I think it's one of my favorite Steven Soderbergh films. If not my favorite Steven Soderbergh film. It's an there amazing film. There is something film. so pure and weird. Because it's pure Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. This is right from his id to the paper. Yeah. And uh, there's so much of him in that. It's yeah. He's an old friend. Really? He and I lived together for a couple of years while he was writing Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Wow. And, uh, I had no idea. So I've worked... Uh, Where are you from? I grew up in Boston, but okay. I moved here when I was 19 in 1976. Awesome. And within, I think, you know, four or five years later, I had met Steven, and mm-hmm. we moved in together, and... And, the, the, and then he won the Golden Palm right. at the right. Palm. Yeah. right. He's he's an amazing man. Yeah. But uh, so I'm glad to hear there's a fan of Schizopolis. That's, oh yeah. There, well, there's a, a whole sub, there's a whole film. subgroup of fans out there that, ah. that that love it. And I love. It's one of those movies that I love introducing to people because I always assume they haven't seen it. Uh-huh. Um, and when I when somebody has seen it, I know that we're 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 meant to be. So the, uh, the that film is unique for an. If, in a number of ways, and I will geek out just for a quick second. Do it. That's that what this Steve, whole show is about. Stephen wanted this to be real guerrilla filmmaking. He, I think he went out and bought a 16 millimeter airy camera, and I think yeah. the crew was like three people: it's him and John Hardy, Paul Ledford, and himself. Yeah. And he operated and acted uh, in it. And, started and then it. in post, same thing. He wanted us to do all the post in like three days instead of the usual three months. He wanted us to cut the work track and not smooth out the dialogue, and he wanted me to cut the sound effects in a day. I think wow. I ended up cutting the sound effects in two days, but we wow. had a lot of fun. We would just sit with me and we'd pick weird noises to put in. Yeah, it was a fun, fun project. And I think it's still on the final release. The credits are on one frame. Have you watched all it? the credits? 
I don't remember that. You don't remember the credits because the credits are like a sink pop. It's one frame <laughs> with the four, you know, 14 people that worked on the movie. Wow. That's a typical sort of Bergian kind of thing to do. You're yeah. right though, because that camera, that, that makes sense in the very beginning. You rotate the lenses. He does that thing where he rotates yeah, the lenses. So. It's got, got three sort of on it. sounds right. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for... Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm, I have to I'm say, so happy. and this is not an insult to Mark Sexton or any other people we've talked to so far on, on Mad Max, you have gotten the most shout outs over the course of our 30, 40 episodes. What's a what do you mean shout outs? References, uh, accolades, applause. From your audience? From Jury and I. Oh. From, it, just, it just has come up so I, much well, in, this, in, yeah. this, in talking about this film. We, so what we do is we go four minutes at a time through the movie. We stop. We talk about it for about an hour. Sort of break it down. I and see. yeah, and okay. we've had, we've had, we've had some good special guests come on and yeah. be able to talk about the film. But yeah. in terms of storytelling, which is I think what we've settled into in terms of our main sort of broad interest about just the way the story is told, sound mm. and the and the is, world is built. Yeah, yeah, world building and storytelling. The sound is in this film in particular so aggressively important yeah. in ways. You know, we're both well, film buffs. Especially in I, as, I as little dialogue as there is in the film. <laughs> you know about Black and Chrome. We've oh, got tickets already to see the premiere. And, you know, next year <laughs> we will present a minus dialogue version of Fury Road with just music and sound effects. I was hoping that that was that the Black and Chrome was going to include we, that. We didn't have enough time to do it. Okay. We just got okay. permission from George to experiment okay. with it. Well, we will see every version that comes out, <laughs> That's true. and That's I will right. buy every version yeah. that comes out, okay. um, as slavish <laughs> as that may be. Um, yeah, we were, we were very excited to, to, to hear that the Black and Chrome version was going to come out. I was excited the other day to find out they were going to be playing it as part of uh, Spectrefest here right. in Los Angeles. Yeah, I'm friends with the, the Spectrevision guys. And oh, Elijah they, and, and Gary. Well, my son is an it's, actor, and he right. just co-starred in one of their films. They just finished shooting. Really? And they had heard about Mad Max, and so they, they're rabid fans like you yeah. guys. Oh, they yeah. just wanted to talk Mad Max, and they said, we got this idea, this black <laughs> and brown thing, and George, and George said, you know, and they're, yeah, they're yeah, all like, going crazy. Sh shout really out cool. to the SpectreVision guys. I love yeah, what they've been doing. They're great I guys. love them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Since you've fantastic. done so many, so many films, just in a way of well, launching let me, let me, this. Before, yeah, I want to set the yeah. tone a little bit. Yeah, yeah please. I, I appreciate the accolades and the shout-outs, but of course, no one does this work alone. Of course. And I'm, I'm honored that you've come to me, but I was nominated and won an Oscar with a co-nominee, uh, David White, who was my partner and my creative partner in this. So I don't want to leave him, as well as Wayne Pashley and Scott Hecker, out of this conversation. Those three gentlemen worked um, extraordinary, did miracles along with myself to make this what it is. It's, it's not all me, and, and I have to say that. Awesome. Excellent. No, no, thank you for saying no, that. And, and, and anything yeah. about the process you want to talk about, we're way into hearing about that. Okay. Um, just in terms of launching into a conversation, possibly, um, since you've done so many films, was there any demonstrable, obvious converse, things you can talk about in conversation, differences in the process in terms of this film versus other films, or was it all sort of part and parcel of the same process for you over the years? What made this film different, but not absolutely unique, is that George, unlike most filmmakers, is a great collaborator. And that's something that any film artist lives for, is mm -hmm. a director that wants to share a vision with you and allow you to make a contribution. It's not just their ideas. Yeah. And George's approach, which is very rare, and which is one of the many things that made this unique, was to... He, I arrived in Sydney in a, 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 one morning after traveling for 17 hours and I went right into a screening room and watched the film and then he immediately wanted to know my, my thoughts and impressions of the film. And 
rather than detail in a spotting session, which is a very do I need to explain a spotting session? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine this is true for most disciplines. Uh, that moment when you sit with the director and, and they talk about their vision for a movie. In sound, the movie's already shot, so you can sit at the Avid or the workstation and you can watch the movie and talk about it beat by beat. Um, with George, we did do that, but whereas most filmmakers would stop on a four-minute section right. and and tell you what they wanted... George would outline a general concept or a mood or what the movie was trying to say dramatically and then ask me, Mark, how does sound support that? Wow. Whereas the other filmmakers are kind of more in that sort of micromanage camp where they say, I want to hear a skid there and I want to go quiet here and I, I want to hear an explosion there. And, and that's sort of paint by numbers. That's not a fun right. process to be involved right. with. George made it the most fun process because he wanted to hear what my kind of fresh ideas about the movie were. So that Fantastic. made it very unique from and, just to begin with. And that with. supports every story that we've heard from people who worked with George on this, that he is a great collaborator. Oh, and he fantastic. does put story first. And we, yeah. love, we love hearing that. You have that mm -hmm. sense watching the film, too. What, yeah. And the more we talk about this with people, the more we sort of come to this conclusion that our initial instincts about the film were it's, it's so overloaded with creative ideas and so overloaded with mm -hmm. just concepts and sounds and, and structure and storytelling and world building that... You think, okay, this had to be a million brains, but how does someone harness a million brains into one cohesive project? Right. And the more people we talk to, it sounds like he's like, bring all your cool ideas in, I'll yeah. channel them and filter them, and exactly talk right. through them with you. Exactly. Yeah. That is it as rare as it seems? Mm -hmm. That's that's remarkable. You know, there's a weird thing going on. I don't know if it's a byproduct of the way film schools are teaching, hmm. directing, but there's this sort of auteur kind of film czar mentality that some directors. It seemed mm -hmm. to inherit or inhabit. Right. George George didn't get that. Yeah. Is it is it the the Robert Rodriguezing of film in that you know you, they feel like they have to and not to call Robert out but you know specifically right. he's like well but you know, I can do I can I'm gonna do everything. He's been already gonna, in public for yeah, that. So. Yeah. Exactly. Like I want to you know I'll 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 shoot it I'll direct it I'll I'll write right. it I'll you know I'll, I'll compose the music for it everything. Right. Um. I, I mean so so you see that sort of as a trend then possibly in. Well, not in as much. I mean the sort of the hyphenates as we call them mm -hmm. um, aren't very common. I mean, except for maybe the Jim Camerons and the sure. Robert Rodriguez's. George certainly is not that. Mm -hmm. He he wants to just be at the top of the sort of creative pyramid, uh, soliciting input and, col and collaborating with all the artists that he's assembled. Right. But he does not pretend to be an editor or a cinematographer or a mm -hmm. sound designer for that matter. Mm -hmm. He's none of that. Right, right. But he's brilliant at, as you say, taking um, advice from his team and synthesizing it and, and focusing it in a way that, that yields a good result. You know, mm -hmm. there, there, are, there are great collaborators in cinema that aren't George Millers, that don't, haven't honed their, their filmmaking skills like he has, and they, they will synthesize, but it, they, they're not as good at it as George, and sometimes they get lost, they get off the path, mm -hmm. they lose track of the focus of the film. Uh, sometimes, in their zeal to be collaborators, they allow too much outside influence, and they right. don't know how to filter the information. Mm -hmm. That's a skill. Yep. George has that in spades. That's the real yeah. skill. It, it's, if you were an alien coming into Earth and looking at the film process, you think, okay, you need some sort of singularity of vision to make this a story that makes sense yeah. and feels consistent and cohesive. Yeah. But you'd think the way you just described seems like objectively the perfect way to do it, to yeah. get the most number of good ideas 
filtered into one beautiful project, and yet it seems rare. And I, I hadn't thought about the unique personality type or skill set it would require to, to be so confident about your ability to parse those ideas into a cohesive idea. Yeah. George seems to have the ability to... He's such a gentleman in that process, too. He will take your ideas. If he doesn't like them, you will never feel slighted for him not cottoning to an idea that you had. And right. I can remember many instances where I gave him a, a creative idea. I can remember one in particular. Um, I wanted to create this sort of, for the Vuvulini, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the women's sort of collective that, yeah. that uh, uh, Furioso wants to get back with. And when they finally launched the attack on the war boys, I wanted to create this sort of uvulating war cry for them. Yeah. You hear it once earlier in the movie, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I said to George, that's a signature for this group of women. They must use this in other ways other than to call to the rest of the women that somebody's yeah. come to the camp. Yeah. So I said, this is their cry to each other that we're engaged, that war is on. And there's a beat where the the two of the gals are on a motorcycle and they, they sort of broadside the truck. And yep. I said, you got to hear this war cry that they're, they're on in attack mode. And we put it in and George said to me, that's, Mark, that's just fucking great. That's brilliant. Two weeks later, he said to me, you know, Mark, I liked your idea, but I took it out because when we examine the frame really close, you can see that she's not opening her mouth. So sorry. But right. he was so gentlemanly wow. about it, too. Yeah. Luke was the same way. Can I, div can I diverge? There's a, Luke Besson. Is, uh, Luke yeah. Besson, the director of The Fifth Element. Um, Luke was another one of those amazing collaborators. Mm -hmm. I sat and talked with him for maybe an hour when I first met him, and then I didn't see him till the final mix. Wow. Except for one time, the first sound design review session with him, I played him the air cars, the sounds mm -hmm. I had created for all those flying vehicles. Yeah. And he loved them and he said, that's great, okay, thank you, and he disappeared. And then I rung him up a week later and I said, okay, now I have the, whatever it was, the Mondeshawans. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, don't worry, I'll get back with you. And he never got back with me, which was my way of understanding that he didn't need to. I had shown him that I was competent and he could go on. Well, anyways, cut to the final mix of the movie, and in the very first reel, there's a very big space battle where the, mm -hmm. the Manashawans are being attacked by the Mangalores, and their ships flying around, and a planet blows up, yep. and it's a massive Star Wars-like attack. And, you know, I had built and designed sounds of spaceships and weaponry and voices for the creatures, and we play, Luke came in for the playback of the mix, and he, he, he looked at me and he said, this is... It's phenomenal work you've done, Mark, but I must tell you, and I must apologize, I can't use it. And he said, this is my fault, but what I never told you was, and, and I should have told you this, was that uh, Eric Serra, who is my childhood friend, and I dreamed of this sequence 30 years ago as a musical ballet-like moment. We never envisioned sound in this right. until that very end where the planet explodes, so please excuse me, please forgive me, your work is extraordinary but we're going to take it out. Right. And he was such a beautiful gentleman about it. Well, that's and, incredible. And it all felt, you know, we had put months and months of work I, into I it. I remember hearing but the story. But it felt that, okay. Yeah, <laughs> right, because of how, how collaborative he was and how he approached it. Yeah. It's, it's all in the approach and, yeah. the, and the respect, I think, that, yeah. you know, paid to each of the pieces of production. I, I think Luke had even said to me at, in, in one of our discussions that he didn't understand the American style of micromanaging as a director because he said, why would you hire um, Thierry Arbogast right. or um, who's the great costumer, the, the, the famous um, uh, uh, Gavin Bouquet? Well, no, he's the production designer. Right. 
Um, the, the point oh, of the, the uh, for, for for this film, it was uh, um, he's a famous uh, f fashion. Yeah, he's uh, a fashion designer. Yeah, as well. at uh, Gautier. Yeah, Gautier. Gautier. So yeah. Luke had clearly hired the best in the world in every department. Yeah. And I think he even said to me, "Why would I hire these amazing people and not take their advice?" Right. So those are words right. to live by. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot more it, people could live by them. Do you find a cultural difference in terms of working across the pond with different directors versus American directors, or is that sort of case um, by case? Basis? I don't have a large experience with non-American directors, but with what little I have had, which is I, I can think of four films, um, those directors were the most inclusive and collaborative, mm -hmm. more so than the American directors I've worked with. Although I, I've been blessed, I've worked with some sure. amazing American directors like Frank Darabont and mm -hmm. Gavin O'Connor and a mm -hmm. number of, Joe Dante I did 10 right. films for. Yeah, yeah. These were great cinema giants. Yeah, we're big, giants. We're big fans of Dante over oh, here. Yeah. Joe's yeah. an amazing, I'm still, yeah. we, we write letters to each other regularly. And That's great. He's a great man. Like real letters, like not emails, but letters. No, no, I mean, I meant No, no, <laughs> no I, 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 lo I love the idea of it. So, so, so then you were, so then you came into the process when he already had his cut of the film, or uh -huh. was there not the, quite the final cut yet? No, he had the cut of the film. They mm -hmm. were still in the middle of visual effects. Mm -hmm. You know, and the visual effects were relatively scant in that mm -hmm. those stunts are real stunts with real stuff going on, but of yeah. course, some of the, the stuntmen were on wires right. to protect them. So it was sure. still a real truck falling over and exploding, and the guy still had to jump off it, but he right. had to be on a wire to protect him. Right. So there was a lot of wire removal and yeah, blending some, backgrounds yeah, yeah, and things like that. That kind yeah. of stuff, and obviously a lot, of, a lot in the DI to get the color, that mm -hmm. look of that sort of teal and orange that, that's yeah. sort of a signature look of the movie. Until we get the black and chrome version. Right. And we'll see <laughs> yeah. how that plays. I'm, I'm excited. So, I, so, yeah, George, he was really close. He would tinker. Uh, with the film, but in very, very small ways. And unlike many directors, he would solicit, you know, thoughts from the sound team on where the edit might be improved to improve sound, because then they work right. better together. That's right. and that's pretty rare. Really yeah. good. Right? It really plays together as as, as that cohesive whole. Um, we noticed uh, repeatedly in the film that a lot of the camera moves seem um, character motivated. There's a lot of POV or subtle POV or limited third person sort of camera work and the sound design really supports that. Was there a talk at any point about, is that just you bringing that to the table? In terms yeah, I think of that's just instinctual stuff. We, mm. we never talked about that other than George is a, a, um, a smart director and he knows that not just with cinematography but with sound it's all about focus. You're always leading the audience somehow, yep. and the camera looks, at, the frame is composed in a certain way for a specific reason. So too is sound, and probably the single most um, um, the, 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 the aspect of the soundtrack we worked the most on was creating internal dynamics with sound. You know, arguably this film could have been an hour and 55 minutes of noise. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. always something going on. It could yeah. have been very noisy, but A, that would have, that would have uh, turned off the audience, mm -hmm. and B, it doesn't give you the storytelling focus. At any mm -hmm. moment in the frame, there's something you should be listening to, right. even though you could justify lots of other sound. So in any one of those set pieces, in any one of those big chases, um, you could be hearing rumble and war rig rattling and engines revving and and uh, turbochargers blowing and war boys screaming and gunfire cracking and ricochets pinging there's hundreds of sounds you could be hearing but you shouldn't because you want to tell the story usually only with two or three and so our process you know my process was to bring it into a 
relatively good package with my vision of focus. Mm -hmm. And then you sit with George and he would, we would work together molding that even further, usually in the process of elimination. What can we right. get rid of to create as much laser focus as possible? That's great that you, that you brought the focus first and then he honed it down because I've seen in a lot of design uh, in, the, in this part of the process, um, somebody will come in with everything, right. you know, so that a yeah. director can say, uh, more of this, less, you know, more, yeah. of the, you know, I pull that out. Yeah. Um, I, I see that a lot when we do looping. Yeah. They get everything they possibly can yeah. uh, from the loop yeah. group. I, I think and then I'll go lazy. watch the, yeah. I'll, I think that's bad filmmaking yeah. and that's bad sound design. Yeah. Because arguably I get hired to, to make decisions, to make mm -hmm. those decisions. Yeah. And I work by the 90-10 rule. 90% of the time my choices are good because I've done this so long. Mm -hmm. Only 10% of the time I might be wrong. But when you think of it from a cost-benefit analysis standpoint, right. the 10% time I'm wrong so far outweighs the amount of time and work I might have wasted on the other 90% overbuilding it. Right. There's just nothing to talk about. And in the end, I get hired for my aesthetic. Mm -hmm. and the, the, the filmmaker's going to enjoy what I've brought to it and feel like I'm 90% of the way there. This is yeah. great. That's mm -hmm. why I hired a professional. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That aesthetic really, really plays. And we, hearing you talk about it, it's, the, the impetus for this podcast was that a lot of movies I see, or Yuri and I see together or whatever, we, we go in and watch them, and you start to pull mentally on the threads of the film and the plot and the sort of filmmaking after you see it, and it starts to kind of maybe unravel a little bit. Hmm. This movie, we just sort of realized the more we talked about it, every thread we just happened to randomly tug on really held up in this sort of a deep way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we just said amongst ourselves, I wonder if the whole movie would do that if we just went through and talked on every thread. I every... doubt it. I, let me, and let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. um, we had an unusual luxury of a post-production period and budget that no one else gets. And we, mm -hmm. had the, and we literally, with a magnifying glass, looked for all of those loose threads. And yeah. it was an iterative process of constant refinement. If we found a loose thread, we would, ex we would tug on it for a second and see what do we have to do to tie this up. And we would do that, there would be uh, George, there would be Chris Jenkins and Greg Rudloff, the two re-recording mixers, again, two of the co-authors of the sound of this film. It wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a sound designer, I create the sounds that you hear, but then they weave it into a seamless tapestry that I could never do. So it would be Chris, Greg, George, Chris, Greg, myself, Junkie XL, the composer, ask, Bob yeah. Batemi, his music editor. And that was a little core team. We would literally sit in a studio like this, the five of us, just <laughs> yeah. watching the movie like you guys, like geeks. And we'd say, hey, wait a minute. Why? Do we need a sound for that? Or should, should we take out that sound because it's distracting? And we would just pour over these needless <sighs> details for months. And Isn't I th it? I think that's, but I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. That this film, specifically over all other films that we could do this with, there aren't any threads you can tell on. Be, that, but that there's just very out. There's a yeah. deeper yeah. point here to me, which is that isn't it remarkable that the remarkable that the human subconscious clocks that? Like you sort of get an intuitive Ooh. sense watching it, and there's people I've spoken to who've seen it one time who have an intuitive sense that what you just said is true, Ooh. and the they haven't spent a hundred hours or whatever going through yeah. it like you did or like <laughs> working through all the loose threads, but they know on a on a weird level people do clock that, and I find that mm -hmm. so remarkable because that was the impetus for all of this is that. Not just on a on a sound level, although certainly that's a huge part of it, but a but a camera level and a storytelling level, yeah. we had yeah. that intuitive sense that this thing is different because it's not loose, it's tight yeah. in a way modern films are, and that post production uh, process time really, I it mean, that's really part helps. of it, I'm sure. Um, you know, 
I'm glad, that's a great analysis. It's a great observation. And it ties into a pet theory of mine. I have no proof for this other than my son having studied psychology for six years in college. <laughs> we'll take and, it. And <laughs> that is this. I'm sure you've heard this, this oft-used trope in cinema, the suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. um, part of my job, one of my fundamental, one of the things that I put great stock and trade in is my purpose is to create such a seamless, believable underpinning to the film with sound on a subconscious level that I, if I can create an environment where the audience can sign off on the believability of the film from a sonic standpoint and they can um, suspend their disbelief, because of course all film is artifice, so that's mm -hmm. the first goal of filmmakers is to allow the audience to suspend disbelief. Well, how do you do that? You create a, a, a verisimilitude for that particular narrative. So whether it's, si even in science fiction, you're creating verisimilitude of that time and period and, and, and mm -hmm. technology. The more I can do that, and I work on a very subconscious level on that, uh, on that level, the more I can convince the audience to sign off on that, the, the quicker they can buy into the narrative and the filmmakers can propel the, plot, the story forward. Right. So that's my job, yeah. is to we tie together all those loose ends and to create such a believable soundscape that they are, they're fully immersed and fully engaged and they don't have to think about it. Mm. Well, I think I mentioned this to you before we started recording, that I'll watch a movie, as much as I love movies, as much as it is a visual medium, I, I, I will forgive a little bit out of focus, you know, little things here and there, but as soon as I hear like tinny, crappy, you know, audio recording or as soon as that falls apart for me, I'm out. It, yeah. it pulls me out immediately. I don't know yeah. if that has something to do with the way the brain is wired. It's part of it. Probably, yeah. Um, you know, I, when I lecture at film schools, the first thing I, I tell uh, students is that the first thing that turns off the audience is bad sound. Because yeah. if you're an inexperienced filmmaker, you put the microphone on the camera, and it's a dead giveaway that, that this isn't professionally done. Mm -hmm. The sound is roomy, and the character is way over there, and it sounds cheap. Yeah. And the same holds true in, in motion pictures. I just yeah. rewatched. This is a little bit of a tangent. I'm sorry, but we. I just rewatched the Blair Witch Project, and I didn't realize the first time I watched it that 80 percent of my creeping horror or fear of that is is sound is the motivation of the sound. And they're they're very careful in a film oh. about where the sound's motivated from. Well, I wasn't aware of that. I did. I well, I saw it in, when I was 19 or whatever. I didn't understand. And and I watched it again this time, and I was like, oh my god! Most of the subconscious horror of this is mm -hmm. how they're motivating. You know the sound, especially in the final sequence, they're cutting between. Uh, it's just two camera audios, basically. And there's a there's a uh, camera audio downstairs, and there's one upstairs, and they're cutting between those, and they're both echoey and terrible. And mm -hmm. You can't really parse it, but your subconscious certainly yeah. parses it. Yeah, it does. And you know this, and sound yeah, is such an intuitive subconscious yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, think of it this way: um, our lives are fully informed and we make decisions every nanosecond of our waking lives by the sound that we're surrounded by. We are, we are immersed in sound that we don't control and subconsciously you hear a screech, you avoid, oh, I don't want to go down that street or you hear a, you know, it sounds in subtle and obvious ways inform the narrative that is our lives with the directions we take in everything. Yeah. In cinema we have complete control over that so the more we can leverage that uh, the more we can heighten the, the engagement of the audience. Yeah, fantastic. I would like to go into specific, you know, some specific things in the film that, that we have 
recognized and enjoyed. And uh, I know that uh, certain things seem obvious, uh, like the the sounds of things that you see, like when <laughs> that when the harpoon goes by uh, Max's head. You know yeah. that is a that is a moment. Yeah. You know the explosions and, and the sounds of things that we have visual cues for. And then there are the more soundscapey uh, things that we we have noticed from time to time. One, you know, another character motivated thing. Whenever a gunshot goes off near um, near Max's head, mm. we get it. We get a, a blowout and a, and, a, and a ringing like a tinnitus like, like tone. A, like huh? a tinnitus tone. Yeah. That and then then we're back into it again. Yeah. Um, when uh, they meet up with the Vivalini and um, Furiosa comes to the conclusion, you know, she is informed that. This there there's is no, no green, green place, yeah. and and everybody's dead, mm. um, yeah. and and as she sort of walks into the everything sort of goes. You mm. hear them talking to her, right. but it's all leached out. It's all leached yeah. out, like yeah. like she's she can't she's hear what they're it. saying. Yeah, she's and, gone into her own mind. Um, and yeah. were these were moments like these the things that that sold George on on you, your ideas? Are we already in at that point? Um, I mean. It, it, how, how did how did how did you find your way to George um, for this project, and and how many of those things you know were sort of you know came out of conversations, sure. um, or the things that you came to him and said, mm -hmm. you know this is I think a, a way to heighten this moment. Wait, right. separate those two answers. I'm cu very curious about both okay. those questions. Okay, yes. So yes. yeah, the w first, one question, it, yeah. first question. Yeah. How did I come to George? Yeah. Sure. Um, George's team reached out to me. They were they were working in Australia and were not happy with the sound that they had. Mm -hmm and they felt as though they needed uh, some new ideas. Mm -hmm. So I was called and asked if I would come to mm -hmm. Sydney and sit with the team that he was already entrenched with, and a great team, right. a, 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 a fabulously talented group of people who really only needed a little bit of focus and direction. There was mm -hmm. certainly no lack of creativity mm -hmm. and diligence. Um, and this was based on your, your experience, other projects you had worked on, and yeah. was there something and, in particular yeah. he referenced when they reached out, or was it just like, "Hey, we love no, your stuff"? I just got a call. Yeah. I have yeah. no idea why or. I, <laughs> hey, you know what? Doesn't matter. <laughs> right? Who cares why? Yeah, right. But you know, in, in all honesty, and maybe I shouldn't go on record as saying this, but when I got the call initially, I thought fourth episode. Ma I right. love Mad Max. We but all the felt the same way. Thunderdome. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. I'm not so sure about trust, this. Tr but trust, we, we feel you. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but of course, the minute I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I, I really stand by what I said earlier. I get hired for my ideas, and I was fully prepared and did, in fact, present a very radical overhaul of the sound of the movie to George in a discussion and in an encyclical to him, a bullet point sort of, mm -hmm. you know, point by point, here's what we need to do differently about this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I can remember the night before, I even have a photograph of my anxiety that one of the crew took. I knew the next day I was going to pitch to George what we were, my, my, and I knew I could be on a plane the next day, but these are the, these are the risks I'm willing to take. Uh, because otherwise it's no fun. Right. If, if all I'm going to be is somebody's hands, I didn't want to be in Sydney for the next month mm -hmm. just to execute somebody else's ideas. I wanted to take some risk and get the attendant glory if it was going to work out that way. So I pitched George a number of ideas about, in sort of broad stroke terms, about focus. I told him that that was the first thing I concentrated on was, was uh, we don't know what to listen to. There's too much of everything. 
um, the, the sound team had brought great elements for everything, but our two re-recording mixers couldn't find them. Uh, and part of that was a function of the schedule was a little too compacted and the, the, the sound design team didn't have the time to sort of point them towards where to go with things. So part of bringing me in was just sort of, you know, now we have an extra body, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, I was allowed to sort of create the focus that George would have done because George couldn't be at the mix every day. George was with visual effects and DI and a number of, uh, and, mm -hmm. and working on ADR with all the actors. So I became his eyes and ears at the mix to implement a vision that we had sort of agreed on. Part of that pitch um, was a, 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 I, I got this literary illusion of Moby Dick. To me, when I saw the film, the, it was Moby Dick. Uh, the war rig was the great white whale and um, Morton Joe is Ahab. And the, it doesn't take a literary genius to make that association. They're shooting well, now harpoons. That you, well, now that you've said it, <laughs> yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it They're before. They're shooting <laughs> harpoons at the damn thing. And, right. and well, it's we trying were... to escape capture. And I mean, Last... and it's huge. Yeah. Right. And You're it right. blows. And so to that end, I started to use that, that uh, literary metaphor Wow. Uh, and it, as as literal expressions of sound with things like when the harpoons would hit the war rig in the tank, I used whale blowhole sounds for the milk bursting or the water bursting out of the tank. And and when the when the harpoons would hit would would hit the war rig, I would use slow down whale like humpback whale groans as if it's a beast or a creature. I'm so happy right now. You're so, making me so happy right and now. And that it's was so part cool. of the pitch to George as well. It was a big part of the pitch. Was I said, you know. The war rig, if nothing else in this film, it has so much screen time, it's as much a character as Nux is. So why don't, we treat it, why don't we treat it as such and give it its moment in the sun on occasion? Let it have its soliloquy every now and again. We've talked about the anthropomorphizing of the, the war rig, yeah. and uh, there's, there's the, the beautiful moment when they, they put the fire out with the thing, and the intake, blow, you know, and, yeah. it, and it finally gets oh, a breath you, you in. you noticed that. Yeah, we absolutely noticed yeah. that. I didn't yeah. realize you well, were using just, whales I, I, sound. I think but. it's just before, they, when it lowers the plow into the sand, mm -hmm. there's a, a really great, like, uh, it's a lion or a tiger growl that we slowed down to just to give it a little more sort of bestiality. And Your job and, but, sounds so cool. But, but the <laughs> apotheosis of <laughs> this so idea cool. is at the very end of the movie. When I came on, when Nux decides to sacrifice himself and mm -hmm. throw the war rig into that sort of T-bone, thing or whatever it is yeah, that he does to, to, flip it to block the to pass block the canyon, yeah. you know it, it it the sound team had prepared the kinds of things that you would expect there were skids and ronks and metal crashes and scrape sounds and I wanted it to be a ballet I, I, I didn't remember this consciously but I think I thought of my Luc Besson moment and I thought you know what we, we don't need reality. We need hyper-reality. We need something much more poetic than that. This is the death of the uh, antagonist, or the protagonist in this case. Yeah. So <laughs> I wanted a, a death song. So we took out all the skids and the crashes of, for that little minute-long sequence, and we put in the sounds of dying animals. So if you listen to that, from the moment he throws the wheel, it's all... And so we just reduced it to just these dying animal sounds so that Junkie's score could flower better because it was carrying the emotion of the moment, sort of yeah. the death moment. And uh, we were, and George just loved that. He loves it when you take 
you, you use cinema at, 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 at you, you, you take advantage of every tool you have in your artist's quill, whether you're a filmmaker or a painter or a, or a sculptor, and you apply them to a moment. You yeah. don't, and this is something we talked about regularly, is the, not, the need not to be literal with sound. There's yeah. many other examples of that throughout the film, but that, that's an obvious one of anthropomorphizing the war rig. There's, so a, I, there's a sense of, so of right as now. long as the whole creative team on a film is playing in the same sandbox, it can tend to work out, whether it's slapstick or whether it's you know high drama. As long as everyone sort of seems to be playing together, it can work. And in this one, we've talked a lot about there's verisimilitude and then there's a heightened reality in this film that's very, very specific to this film. There's hints of magic. There's hints yeah. of, of, yeah. of arch drama. There's hints of mythology. Because ultimately, like, it's playing in the myth space, but it's yeah. grounded in this dirty, dirty reality. Yeah. Yeah. And hearing you talk about this, it just it, it makes me so happy to know that, at least subconsciously, we're getting all this... Um, slightly heightened reality from all angles, and yeah. our our bodies pick up on this, and our bodies feel yeah, this. Yeah, they do. It responds mm -hmm. subconsciously to this stuff. It's this isn't conscious level stuff, and it m most audience viewers w won't get most of this stuff. But they, yeah, they won't talk about it, but they'll get right. it, which is crazy to me because yeah. a lot of things. I mean, the, the, I'm surprised in a way. I shouldn't be, but I'm surprised in a way that the echoes of the conversation here are echoes we've been having about camera angles, about character yeah. motivation, yeah. about dialogue. Yeah. But this is all the same content in, yeah. in a way that I'm really enthused by just because it, it makes total sense that everyone now is so on the same playing field. They're all playing in the same exact yeah. space. It's sort of a liminal space. It's really hard to get to, I think. It is. It takes time. Yeah. But it's... You know, that all starts with George, though. I mean, nothing in our film, visually or sonically, is is ill-considered or not considered. In other words, there's a reason for everything. And yep. George, you may or may not, you know, George invented that universe. And he could tell you, even in, in Fury Road, why that symbol is in the middle of that steering wheel on that vehicle, and that's because they come from this tribe whose origins date back to <laughs> movie one mm -hmm. or two, and mm -hmm. and... It, it's all part of a universe that he's really sorted out in his head. I mean, you could ask him at any moment what anything visually means and why it's there. There's, there's nothing accidental in this film or any of his films. We have assumed that that is absolutely the case. Because every time we push on it, it just holds up. It pushes back. Yeah, and, and little <laughs> details, um, you know, even with the, with the lack of you know, dialogue in, in the film, little details tell so many stories about the world. And... The, the first thing I wanted to do when I saw the film was go back and see it again mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there was, it was so rich. Yeah. And well, this is a dumb question. Go with the dumb question. <laughs> Why are those guys speaking Russian? Is it Russian? It is Russian. Can you, are you allowed to, what's going on there? Because I can't, um, we can't you know, this, yeah. one, of a, one person in two years of post asked George that once. I, we all were curious. <laughs> Somebody had the balls to ask. Yeah. And sadly, I don't remember his answer. But, there, but he, he had, had an answer. answer, of course. He, he had, an, had answer. an answer. And I want to say that, um, you know, because we're this sort of post Holocaust or post nuclear world, that uh, uh, cultures and tri cultures have fractured into tribes, and clearly. The, the various nation states had to fracture and go right. somewhere, and maybe this just happened to be the Russians. I don't yeah. think he had anything more but significant. It feels like, than I mean, that. this is not a rabbit hole to go down here, I don't think. <laughs> but it feels like if, it's, if we're in Australia, there's other closer ethnicities and languages that might have migrated <laughs> right. to Australia. Not that I'm 
parsing details here, but right. like the the, the Russian choice has always felt weird to me. When we have George on the show, uh, I will yeah. I will ask. I, I wish I had a better answer, but I could I can answer it with a better response. Great, and that is this: George had been developing this for at least fifteen years, sixteen years, something like yeah. that, and in its earliest iteration. George had invented a language that the entire movie would take place in. He didn't want to do it in English. And the doof warrior, the, yeah, the crazy huh? guy oh, with the yeah. guitar, was going to be the sort of the balladeer. There would be no score. The doof warrior would be on top of that giant truck with speakers, playing the score, kind of like a, a minstrel uh -huh. in, a, in, a, uh -huh. in a period piece, yeah. you know, in a Robin Hood drama. Yes. Yeah. He would be the minstrel playing the score as the drama unfolds. The studio Good. didn't particularly cotton to that version. <laughs> sure, yeah, sure, I can see that. It never got off the ground. Uh, but I'm glad you brought up the Doof Warrior. I'm glad you brought up, um, you know, working with Junkie XL's score. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about the work you did? Because, because the score often is grounded in real situations that are happening. The, the Doof Warrior playing, the drums on the back of yeah. that, of, of that yeah. truck. They, you see that they sync with the soundtrack. Right. Um, can you talk about the process of working with the soundtrack in that respect? Well, that's, that's, a, that's another podcast in and of itself. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. I, I, I had an amazing experience with Tom Holkenborg, the yeah. composer, mm -hmm. who, it, and I think it needs to be acknowledged, and I'm sure you guys would, he got robbed that he didn't get a nomination. Mm -hmm. That's an ex I listen to it in the car. I I do too, regularly. and I drive too, I it's far too fast routine. when I I, <laughs> yeah. I, work, I use I use it at the gym and I drive to it and yeah, yeah drive it. It makes me dangerous when it's I'm. It's an I'll unbelievably be accomplished score. One of the reasons it's so accomplished is that George, again in his prescience, moved Junkie to Sydney nine months before the mix, and began working on the score with sketches. Um, you know, most composers, they come on, they get four weeks to write, couple weeks to record, boom, you're in the mix. Junkie came on for nine months and worked with George on this, cre I don't know a lot about that period, mm -hmm. but from what he's told me, and by the way, Junkie and I, every day of the mix, we would meet for coffee at seven in the morning, and we would talk, about, and with Chris and Greg, the two recording mixers, mm -hmm. and we would talk about the approach sound was going to take for the movie. All without George, we just we knew we were going to build a track for him that we wanted to blow away, blow him away with. And we knew score and sound design had to work together, so we had to work in a way that wasn't conventional or traditional. Yeah. So he had built a lot of sound design into his score. I had built a lot of musical-like components in my sound design, and we decided to sketch that out ahead of time so that we didn't have the traditional fights on or or yeah. conflicts on the uh, mixing stage of. The composer complaining that you can't hear his music, and the sound designer complaining you can't hear his word, yes. sound design. We worked all out, that all out ahead of time and built a, a, a dynamic for George to come. And again, 90-10 rule. What Junkie and I and Chris and Greg got figured out was 90% of the time exactly what George wanted. The 10% was what George would come and say, you know what, I had a different idea here. Mm -hmm. And we would, then we would tweak it. That's crazy. So, um, you know, in terms of the drums, you know, that's all really easy stuff. George mm -hmm. knew enough to uh, use a, a, a click track or a playback on set so that the drummers would mimic a beat, so that, which was mm -hmm. something that Junkie could approve and, and, and record to mm -hmm. later on. He would then, for Mad Max, record these massive percussion sessions. Mm -hmm. He'd bring in nine of the world's top percussionists, put them in a warehouse, put a hundred mics out, and record everything you can. I mean, yeah. they would beat on Tycho's, so and they would beat on kitchen, literally, 
kitchen sinks. Anything that could be percussive, he would record it and he'd build these very dense layered uh, drum s samples yeah. because he loves using samplers for the percussion stuff in his scores. Mm -hmm. And just so you know, the Doof Warrior is junky. He, he plays everything. He plays guitar, he plays really? keyboards, he plays drums, and he performs, and I have a video of him doing one of the very last um, Doof Warrior cues where he's, we, we pan up to him and he's, he's doing some crazy distorted yeah. shred guitar thing. And that's <sighs> Junkie in his room right behind the dubbing stage with George just, you know, 10 feet away. Uh, it's so extraordinary cool. stuff. And so J Junkie, uh, Tom, uh, Tom, Tom Wolkenborg, we both embedded at the mix stage, which again never happens. The composer's at home in his, his studio, sound designers at a place like this, and we convene at a, a mixing facility across the city. We embedded right at the We were there with everybody, and so it was all this little tight team of sound people with, you know, sort of working on the same thing. So I, I would go into, we'd, we'd, every morning we'd have espresso together, we'd talk about the direction we'd take for that day, we'd go and implement it, and then during the day we'd walk into each other's rooms and say, listen to this, I have this idea for this thing, I want to do this, how does this, what's your score like here? What if you take four frames off of that and move it here? Here's a good example of it. I, I, now I'll be curious to see if the experts caught this one. This was, this was <laughs> I love that he just he, he pointed to us. Just guys so you guys know, he pointed to us. When he said <laughs> yeah. I'm not calling you out or anything. <laughs> well, you called us experts, which is crazy. <laughs> which is yeah. Go on. So there's this the lovely moment where um, um, Mad Max is you know after the he's been freed from the bonds of Nux. He's he's mm -hmm. shot off the the thing and he's dragging the door. You know, yep. He hears the sound of a, of a motor, mm -hmm. he he's, he's approaching the war rig, and we see Furiosa banging on the blower yep. with a giant spanner. Yeah. So there was always this sort of lack of a transition from the first scene where he's extricated himself to the new scene where he's going to introduce some, some conflict with the, with the women. So he hears, we see Furiosa banging, mm -hmm. we cut to Max, we hear the banging in the distance, and as he approaches the truck, the score starts to introduce itself with drums going bung, 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 bung. So I thought, wow, wouldn't that be a lovely transition from banging on the blower to the drums in the score? So I sat with Bob Badamy, the music editor, and said, I know we're a little off tempo. We're locked visually into the tempo that Furiosa has, but I think because the drums are sort of whatever the drum equivalent of a cappella is, right. let's, let's fit those with the rhythm of the spanner and let's just do a straight crossfade there. And so as you, when you listen to it, it's a beautiful transition. It's just a very 50-50 blend. One turns into the other seamlessly. And so it's like clang, 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 drum. We didn't talk about it. We're going to go back now, and do it. Now we're, yeah. Well, yeah. This proves well I mean, one we thing, just did. This but... proves one thing I've always said about us. That we're not experts. <laughs> right. No, I'm saying it That is such a geekazoid, you know, pinpoint. You're moment. turning us into sound geeks. I want to say that I'm like being converted. Well, into, and and the watching this, this film in the way that we have has has revealed things that I wouldn't normally notice. True. And and we talked about it before. You know, these are these are th if you're doing your job right, you don't notice that on the first view. No. But when you start to really break it down, you can pick out these things and really appreciate them. You know what's cool, man? As as I mean, we're all freelancers to a certain extent, I think. And and a lot of times there's a sense as a freelancer of where you spend your time, and this is a valuable use of my time. I don't have to be at the office nine to five. I have to be there as long as I want to be mm -hmm. to do a good job. Right. And to know that these early morning espressos and sort of constant creativity living on set or living in the, the process that way 
to know that it pays off must be like a, a nice feeling because you can't yeah. guarantee it's gonna do that. You, you never can, even if you follow that sort of modality to the to to the to the T. Um, you never know when your creative process is going to yield anything good, but you have to believe in it. Mm -hmm. And yes, it was extremely reassuring. Most of my life is spent doing things a regular, a traditional way. We wanted to buck that and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. I, well, I, I, it it's works. a nice feeling that the pain <laughs> yeah, so it really works. I'll give you another geekazoid moment. Yeah, please. And, and I, I can't take I credit hope, for I hope, my. I hope my, we noticed this. My, we uh, well, you, you had to <laughs> have. <laughs> uh, but I love it for maybe different reasons than you do. Uh, my. One of my partners in crime, David White, um, crafted this moment, but I just love it. When um, Max wakes up after the, after the big storm sequence and um, he's found himself tethered to Nux and, and Nux is knocked out inside the, the, the car, um, he, we're close on Max and he starts to realize that he's still connected and he's got the, the IV in his neck and he's still, because he's a blood bag, yeah. right? Yeah. So David, very simply put in the sound of arterial blood there. Yeah. Just to remind the audience that mm -hmm. there's this blood and life and death connection uh, uh, that, that, that's, that Max's life revolves around. And I just love it. It was just it's, it's such so simple yeah. sound metaphor. Yeah. We talked a lot about the blood uh, and the pulse and the that mm -hmm. that playing in the mm -hmm. film. It's come up a lot, I think, oh. throughout the course. And that of the moment right after the storm because it's so alive and so chaotic and so loud and the storm finished and so it's your sort of our first break in yeah. the whole film yeah um because the film has just been going gangbusters since the beginning yeah and there's there's that quiet moment that he then sort of shake himself shakes himself out of yeah that, I, we I have talked that. about that moment a lot that, that that is one of my favorite sound moments in the movie again david constructed all that we and just to touch on the beat, we always knew that sonically, if you were to even graph it on paper, that the build to the cut to black on the f or the fade to black on the flare, mm -hmm. we, we were almost as loud as we ever get in the film at that point when that's intentional from a sort of design standpoint, a, an envelope design standpoint, mm -hmm. because we also knew we would go to dead silence, literally digital zeros when you cut to that little mound of sand. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then that's my, one of my favorite sounds in the movie. David constructed all of that of Max extricating himself from the sand. There's so yeah. much beautiful detail, every grain of we sand. We talked is, a lot yeah, about that the because the movie, the movie just does this to you is that it'll inundate you and because your senses are so heightened from the loudness and the chaos and, and tracking all the different you know, variable noises that when it does cut out and gives you just a subtle sound, you are, your ears are so perked for it. You need like, that. Yeah, yeah you're, you're just cued yeah. to every You need every that sort of rustle. cleanse palate cleansing thing yeah. in a way. Every movie needs many of those. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of filmmakers who make tent poles that don't get that, that they think you sure. have to constantly bludgeon the audience with sound. But you can't appreciate those moments without the really quiet moments. And you have to really look to build them in. And it gives you the, it gives you the, the full manifestation of the quiet moments, I would argue too, yeah. that because yeah. you've had the loud and you're, you're so amped and your adrenaline's still pumping, that every rustle of, of sand or cloth you, you you feel it and you and you hear it in a way that if it was just a wall of sound you would get lost you would get lost there's it doesn't work the same way because like you said before it's mimicking the human condition the way we go yeah. about the world isn't inundated with sound right it's mm -hmm. quiet and sometimes we're listening for a slight whisper behind us or a sure. footstep and sometimes we're hearing a loud shrieking car we're, we're constantly juggling these levels of sound. Mm -hmm. And so for a film to imitate that, and as you said, instinctually, that's how you sort of work, yeah. that's, that, that, that does it. And it, in, in the course of this conversation, it's, it's sort of remarkable, remarkable to me how few films 
seem to do well, that. And, it, and it, it, mm. it struck me the very first time I saw it, one of the things that struck me right away, uh, even before the film was over, was how much, how much it felt like George and the team, how much respect they had for the viewing audience. Uh, as, a, as, a, as an audience member, I don't often feel very respected. I feel like, you know, things have to be spoon-fed mm -hmm. or things are glossed over. Oh, they'll, no, they'll never notice this or whatever. But as the film went on, I, I felt respected and, and honored as, as an audience member, as a viewer, uh. um, in a way that, that I, I can't even remember when the last well, time but was, like so. any good storyteller, George's goal is to engage the audience. He, he doesn't yeah. want to alienate you, so yeah. he, he'll do anything to make sure you have a satisfying experience. Yeah. One of the last, the very last things we did on the film was, um, you know, the movie ends with a 17-minute set piece. It's the chase across the desert. And that could have been 17 minutes of cacophony. Um, so we, for the last week of the mix, we spent most of our time finding the peaks and valleys. We took a lot of sound out of that so it would ebb and flow. And then when we were all done, in the last four hours of the mix before George disappeared forever and the movie went to the lab, yeah. you know, right. metaphorically, lab, yeah. metaphorically right. speaking, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, we looked at it and we thought, you know what? This is too loud. And we just did an overall reduction, gain reduction of one dB across the entire mix because we wanted to not run the risk that we would um, alienate the audience with any kind of sound pain because we were too loud. Interesting, was that a sort of unanimous when someone said it? Was everyone like, yeah, cool? Or was there some pushback well, on that? As, as, no, there was never a pushback. What was amazing about this film, and very rare, is that we were, all worked as like a, a one mind. So I think Chris Jenkins brought it up. He said, you know, I'm not sure, but I think we might be too loud. What do you guys think? And we all thought, you know, maybe George has signed off on this, but let's see what it looks like. And so we go back, you know, let's try 2 dB, let's try a dB and a half, let's try a dB. Yeah. We did everything as a collective, and then we rung George and said, we had this idea, you got we want you to come and listen to this because we know you signed off on the reel right. five days ago. And then George would come in and say, he said, yeah, that's great, that's what we should do. Wow. <laughs> so I, I know, that's the way it worked. I, I know yeah. you said that was the last thing that you guys did, and I would be tempted to, to wrap it up at this point. It seemed like a good place. But you just reminded me of, uh, well, the, you know, the, 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 the quiet, you know, these quiet moments. Uh -huh. that one, of, one of my favorite moments, which is ridiculous for me to say because the, the film is nothing but favorite moments for me, <laughs> um, the, the monsters at rest period, right before they charge back through um, the encampment to go back to the green place and surprise everybody. Yeah, Morton Joe and his his people are just hanging out. Mm, they can't yeah. find the war rig. You know, yeah. they're just they're sort of waiting for somebody to report in saying right. they've seen it. Yeah, what's going and on? And he's chanting, and there are yeah. flies buzzing, yeah. and and, every, and and it's got a really sleepy quality to yeah. it. Yeah. What was? Can I just ask sort of what what your uh, your idea was going into that moment? Because it is a very specific moment that most films would not take the time to show the monsters at rest. Right. Um, Visually, it was very it was self-evident, I, I, and I'm very sensitive to the way a film is presented to me. You know, George and Margie uh, Siskel, 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 Siskel. Sorry, Margie. My lisp. It's right. It's because we're not Australian. You know, they've spent okay. a great deal of time constructing that scene, and they do you know their very thorough sort of sound preparation on the Avid, 
And, you know, that always gives you an indication of the direction they want to go to, and you must respect that. You may not have to respect it in terms of the sounds they use. They want you to do better, but it tells you, we want it quiet here. So mm. don't fill it up with people fixing their cars. And so right. that's always, that's sort of like a, a little road map for me as a sound designer. Here's the direction they want to go in. Let's respect that and improve on the idea. So one of the things that I did was... Um, at, like, for the when you cut to the Doof Warrior, he's asleep in like this oh, little hammock. Thing. But that. I thought because he's the bugler, um, he should be ready. So it, I, ha, I, you know, I don't know if you play guitar. The sound when you you pull the patch cord out of your amp. Yeah. So I just had that open input sort of hum. amp hum. Yeah. yeah. He's ready to plug yeah. in and yeah. play charge. <laughs> yeah. right. I actually I just, clocked that. It's so, great. Yeah. It's great. So it's just little things like that that detail the moment that most people would never. Clock, but yeah. uh, it's I, just overload with creativity, and everyone we've I, talked to in the film just feels like obsessively creative. They're just brimming with ideas, and you're no different. Like there's just tons of ideas, and ide even I mean I have to we have to go back and talk about these slow down animal sounds. That's going to occupy us for a good amount of time. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. The sound designers did. I don't even. Well, know. I it's not an original idea of mine. I got it from Steven Spielberg when we did Raiders of the Lost Ark in the spotting session. He told us that. Uh, at the end of the movie, when Indy gets a hold of the truck that has the Ark in it, mm -hmm. because he doesn't want it to get on the flying wing, he said, I want the truck to sound heroic only when Indy drives it. So why don't you put some animal sounds on the truck? Now, go back and watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. It I'm is, going to. It is yeah. so insanely obvious. These lion growls, they just go, rawr, every time he turns the wheel. But the audience isn't expecting that, and we think we achieved a really great psychological subconscious effect of giving Stephen what he wanted. But that was his idea. Yeah. And so I just channeled that uh, on, you know, I just recycled it. It's great. It, you know, it, it, it makes me not want to go back and just watch Fury Road with you sitting next to us to sort of point out little <laughs> yeah, things, yeah, yeah. but to watch all of the movies that yeah. you've... I mean, Raiders is a movie that I will traditionally watch once a year. I mean, it and it and it it's always great, holds it up. It always holds up. It's a beautiful movie. Yeah. I love that. I could tell stories. I have great stories about Raiders. Too. Can we get a couple another podcast, podcast so that podcast. we can... Right, yeah. 130 episodes with Mark. Right, right. right. Yeah. We'll, do, we'll do Raiders 60 seconds by 60 seconds. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, cool. I think that's great. Well, uh, then let me wrap yeah, up. Please. Yeah, please. I'll let you do please your wrap-up. Yeah, yeah. But my way of wrapping up was this, and this I, I love to, to quote George for this. The last After we brought George in to play back that 1DB drop in the mix and sign off on the movie, thank you, see you at the premiere kind of thing, George stood up, and as he would do every day when he came to the mix, he would stand up and he would shake everybody's hands and he would say, thank you very much, this movie sounds amazing. And then he turned to the collection of us, about six or seven or eight of us, and he said, guys, I had no idea sound could help me tell my stories like this. Mm. Wow. Give me goosebumps. You can't do yeah. that, that. No. No, I would like to... Uh, Thank you for taking the time today, Mark. I'd like to congratulate, yeah, uh, congratulate also, on your Academy Award for this film. Yeah, <laughs> we were very we happy with that. Sorry. Yeah, I know we probably should have started oh, with that. Thanks, um, thanks. Uh, you know, it's I, we, such we're, an honor. we're very happy that the, the film garnered as, as much attention from the Academy as it did. Yeah. We were not expecting it, but it was it yeah. was it was it was a huge yeah. and wonderful surprise. Okay. Um, Can I like, say one thing about yes, that? Yes, yes, please. Um, for those of you that are real geeks, if you go on YouTube and you find the European feed of the Academy Awards, you will hear me drop the F-bomb in my speech. Now, what oh, I... Oh, you're my hero. But, but this is the best part. And by the way, I didn't plan it. Uh -huh. um, the best part of it is that, because it's network television, I was muted. I was censored. I was bleeped. 
the I'm sound the guy. Sound guy. You bleep the sound and they guy. Dropped the, they dropped the sound out for five seconds. Here's what happened. When when I got up on stage, I walked out from the audience and I, I had just walked up on stage. I was overcome with emotion. All my brothers, I'd become good friends. We'd become a Mad Max family. Uh, a John Seal and, and uh, you know, everybody on the team. The, the, Five other individuals had won Oscars that night. We were the end of that. And I saw all my friends back out in the audience holding their Oscars, and I felt like this great sense of family pride. As I mounted the stage and they handled my Oscar, I put it up and I said, Fucking Mad Maxes! <laughs> <laughs> and they, they bleeped me. <laughs> of course no they did. God bless America. There's no irony on me God for the sound America. guy having his sound drop that out. That is fantastic. <laughs> so you can see that on YouTube if you go look for the European we're feed. We're going to do that. Everyone go look for that. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your wrap-up. No, no, no. This, 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 we don't, yeah, we're, this is, this is this such is a the, fluid this thing. This is actually probably the most organized podcast uh, we've done. We, yeah, very, this is all very organized I, for it, us. It did. It, it felt like we, had, we, had, we planned all this. Thank you for making that happen. Well, it's because we're experts. Pow! Clearly. Own it, man. Yeah, I'm doing it. To, taking it on. Thank, thanks to you, Mark, for taking the time. Thanks to Lex Lang for for saying, "Hey, I've got a, my friend Mark uh, worked on Lex the film." Lex a great and, guy and a great actor and a great yep, voice talent as yep, well. Yep. No, agreed. I've and I've a known very Lex good for, guitar for player, among other he things. He was my guitar instructor. No way. I was just a bad student, which is why I I, I didn't <laughs> continue. But he is a, he is a terrific instructor. Um, well, I guess go see all of Mark's films again. Yeah, is, there, is, the is, is there, there anything? We always like to give guests, when we have guests, an opportunity to <coughs> um, either push people towards some, where they can see more of your stuff or, or co contact you on the internet, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, or, or to, to push any projects you've got coming or maybe passion mm -hmm. projects that aren't getting a lot of, uh, a lot of press. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say go to my website, which is markmangini.com, mm -hmm. no space. And I have a blog there, and I try to, whenever I feel inspired and I want to preach about sound, that's a great, and especially if you're a film student, I've tried to write a lot about, you know, because I get asked a lot of the same questions like, how do I get a job, and what do I need to improve sure. my work? So I have a, a huge body of, of just sort of my accumulated knowledge posted there in my blog, and there's little sound moments that I've posted. It's a good place to sort of, right. and I have a lot of reading links for some of the great, you know, uh, books and lectures that have been given on sound by Randy Tom and Walter Merch and the, mm -hmm. the greats, you know, the titans of our our business. So that's a that's a that's a place to go gather information for people that are interested. And then as for movies, uh, I, it's hard. I, I love, I just love what I do, and I love all my films. I would say, you know, I'm real proud of, did we talk about Warrior? We did uh, not. I'm real proud of, Warrior was a, is an amazing, it got, Warrior was a movie that, by the way it was publicized, looked like a UFC, like mixed yeah. martial arts movie, but it, what it really is, is an incredible drama about two brothers Family. and their alcoholic father, and it's amazing how Gavin O'Connor, the director, who's a f good friend, and and I just, um, the accountant, I just finished The Accountant Fantastic. that, that comes right. out That's, next yes, week. Yes. That's an amazing movie. Go see it, even if you Can't don't like wait. Ben Affleck. Doesn't um, matter. I was, I was going to any. I mean, I have a four-month-old at home, so going to the movies is tough. But that, that, that's I just one bring that's up on the, my list. The, I bring up Warrior because it was such an overlooked movie. It should have crushed at the Oscars, yeah. crushed at the box office, but it was just poorly marketed. I agree. And yeah. I'm real proud. It's a really good-sounding movie and mm. a beautiful film. And I'm a big fans of both Joel Edgerton and Tom Hardy. Oh, those guys so. are amazing. Yeah. Amazing actors. Yeah. Well, uh, fucking Mad Max. Yeah. Fucking <laughs> Mad Max. What a day. What a lovely day. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Yuri Lowenthal. My name is Travis Sintel. And I'm Mark Mangini. And you are awaited.